But this morning we're going to be looking in 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning's message actually was prepared well by Brother Howard. This morning's message is choices have consequences. Choices have consequences. We all make choices. We're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 10. But if you would, when you find your place, please stand. We're going to, and follow along with me, I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 10 so that we have it within context. 1 Peter chapter 2, begins verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. So notice here, first of all, that matter of laying aside, putting these things aside. As newborn babes... Desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for the privilege that we can gather together this morning to be able to spend time together in singing songs and hymns of praise and thanksgiving and instruction to our own hearts. Father, to be able to have the time to hear thy word taught and preached for the time of fellowship, for the time to be able to come corporately together before thy throne in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come without the fear of persecutions from the world around us, the time that we have to come to be equipped for the days in which we're living. Now, Father, as we come to this portion this morning of looking into thy word, I pray that you'd help each one of us to set aside any distractions or any hindrances that would prevent the working of thy spirit through thy word. And Father, I pray that you would help me to be able to clearly communicate the truth of thy word in such a way that it would not be a hindrance to anybody. You know the needs in each of our hearts today. And Father, I pray that through thy word that we would receive the instruction that we need. We're needed that we would receive the reproof that we need. And Father, I pray that we would be faithful in the choices that we make. In Jesus' name we thank thee and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a day that so many people just want to go with the flow, don't want to have to make a choice. We make choices every day about all sorts of things. 
when Benjamin and Alyssa first came back from Okinawa, uh, some friends let us use our lake house. We came down from Canada and let us use our lake house for a week to spend together and for them to kind of readjust back into the States uh, before starting the next step. Caleb was still a baby. He was not walking on his own yet. And I remember going to the grocery store, and we were out in the country, finding a grocery store to go to, and it wasn't a big grocery store. It was out in the country to get applesauce for Caleb. And you've heard this before from others, but Benjamin stood there just kind of confused that he forgot there were so many choices that he wasn't familiar with having to make a choice. He just grabbed applesauce, was what he was used to doing, and trying to fix, figure out which applesauce to choose. We just, somebody sent me a link this week, of a conference that was going on this past week that somebody was speaking in that we have known from the past. And it's a man that, uh, when he was in his early 20s, made a decision that he was going to go for his doctorate. And unfortunately, his heart has become engulfed with pride and blinded in many, many things. And as I was looking at this conference, it was independent fundamental conference one of the and it was the title it was it's based on the fact of these men helping churches to be able to serve god and one of the requirements to in order to have a paper to present and a requirement in order to attend this was that you had to hold a phd so if you didn't have a phd you didn't have the wisdom necessary to be at this and the academic titles of the papers were, a number of them were quite appalling. It included Southern Baptist, uh, it included all kinds of stripes. And one of them was a paper that being presented. I couldn't see what the papers were, I really would like to have, but it, the title of it had to do with the fact that of where Baptists have created problems by limiting the church to only two ordinances. So I don't know if foot washing was the other one that guy was wanting to bring in. I don't know what he was, where he was going, except that I know he was going in error. Uh, but all that is to say, I believe some of these men probably at one time were on a path with the heart's desire to serve the Lord, but they made choices that took them other directions. Each one of us are making choices on a daily basis, and we need to be very careful as to how we approach making choices and that we not allow ourselves to be deceived to think, well, I'm not ready to make a choice right now because you just made a choice when you said that or when you thought that. We make a choice about what we think during the day. As we were singing the songs this morning, there are songs of victory. There are songs of hope. There are songs of joy because of what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ and what we have through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. But we need to realize that even though we may have that possession, it comes down to the thoughts that we make each day. What do we choose to think on? A thought may come into our mind. We need to evaluate, is that where I need to be thinking today? Do I need to be thinking Fauci or do I need to be thinking God's word? I mean, really, that's what it comes down to in our lives. If we're going to live by fear or if we're going to live by faith, as we... Uh, look in verse 9, which is where we come. Uh, we're going to end in verse 9 and 10 because it's for those that are born again. Uh, but it says, but for everybody that is here this morning, 
that knows the Lord Jesus Christ, but each one of you are part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that matter of but literally means moreover, and he's showing right here that there's a contrast that's been put in place. And I want us to look at the contrast first in verses 7 and 8. Verses in 7 and 8 were given a contrast between those who believe as compared with those who do not believe. It's a very stark contrast that's given to us here. Verses 7 and 8. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. Now that word precious indicates of great value. So if you believe God, the Lord Jesus Christ, are of great value to you in your heart and your life. So if you're sitting here tonight and you know that you live on a daily basis, that there's, you don't really think of them as anything precious in your life, you better start evaluating your heart right now. Because you have a head knowledge, but you don't have a heart knowledge. You've not come to that point of regeneration. He is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner, a chief stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So here's the initial setting of that contrast before he goes to the aspect of dealing with the results of being the new creation, the results of having made the right choice. And first I want us to look briefly at the matter of those who reject, because there may be somebody here or somebody that will be listening online that has rejected and may not even realize that they have rejected. Those who have rejected, but unto them which be disobedient. That word that's translated disobedient, you may think of a child uh, that pitches their fit. Benjamin and Alyssa and the boys are raising chickens. They have egg producers and they have meat chickens. And the egg producers are allowed to roam out and the boys have to bring them in every night. And I was asking Caleb Friday, which ones are the greatest challenge to get back in? The first one was Mrs. Byler. Now, Jennifer asked the other day, I don't know if it's younger Mrs. Byler or older Mrs. Byler. <laughs> but Mrs. Byler was the one that one that's the hardest to get in. And we think of disobedience as something like that. But literally the word uh, here is to refuse to be persuaded. So this matter of disobedience is to refuse to be persuaded. Do you understand that you have to be persuaded? We all have to be persuaded. Persuading to get those chickens in sometimes means out there with a long stick and uh, shrine around to get them up in there. But spiritually speaking, it means that every individual in their heart has to be persuaded to come to that heart of being convicted to the point of repenting and by faith accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. But it's also true for each one of us that is born again. We have to be persuaded by the truth of God in areas that we need to grow in, in areas that we need to change in our own lives, in areas that we may need to repent of, to give up. And those of us that are older can think back on areas in our lives that we know there were times that God was dealing with us on something. And we were not easily persuaded, were we? 
Sometimes it was because we wanted to make sure we were not just given to emotions, that we're doing what was right. Sometimes it was because of all of the instruction that we had in the past, and this is something that's so contrary to what I've always heard of what I'd been taught, and I don't want to just change on a whim, but we had to be persuaded. And that's what is being talked about here regarding those that are disobedient, that they refuse to be persuaded. How is your heart regarding the things of God? As you study God's Word, as you hear the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, do you have a desire to be persuaded by the truth of God? Or do you want to just let it slide right on by? This matter of disobedience, as it's defined here, shows us that it's a choice that's made by individuals. How often do we hear people say, regarding certain types of sin, and you've heard it on the media, you've heard it in public, well, they were born that way. And use that as an excuse. They were born that way. The scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we need to understand that what they're saying is truth. They're applying it wrongly. But when they make that statement, it gives us the door of opening to take them to scripture and say, you know, God's word says that that they're born that way. I was born a sinner too. Then sometimes we hear people say, well, it's a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. Drug addiction is a disease. At one point, even homosexuality used to be labeled as a disease within our society. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And as I was studying last night, this verse came to mind, and I went back uh, doing a word study in it. Do you know the word translated desperately wicked literally means to be incurably sick? Desperately wicked, incurably sick. It's the same word in Job chapter 30, verse 6 is translated, my wound is incurable. It's the same word translated in Jeremiah thirty twelve. Thy bruise is incurable. So when people talk about sin being a sickness, it's not what they mean. But we have a passage in Scripture that we can take them to and say, you know, God's Word teaches us that fact, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's incurably sick. Who can know it? We have an illness right now, a sickness that's going through the world that people are fearful of. And there are those that would say, oh, it's incurable. Unfortunately, there are medications that have been proven very effective, but it's incurable. And there are those that have developed a fear and tried to make people think, well, it can't be cured, so we have to walk in fear and to do all these things. That's a good spiritual illustration of where so many are regarding the matter of sin, the matter of salvation, because the world, every man is born a sinner, and curably sick. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And there are those that say, well, it can't be cured, so we have to work with them. No, there is a cure, and it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's been shown to us through God's Word. So as those that know God's Word, those that have the privilege of being children of God, as we talk to others and we hear this, to help people to understand you're making a choice. Yes, you may say it's a sickness, but God's Word has an answer. And He does identify sin as being incurably sick. 
incurably ill, but God has an answer for that matter. The people need to understand they make a choice whether to reject or to accept what God has provided uh, for that matter of sin. So Peter wrote saying, But unto them that be disobedient, were unto also, whoops, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner. So the, to have been disallowed means literally to have rejected it, to have rejected what God had provided. Uh, it said it's that the stone that God has set there in place, which is the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, he said, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. That matter of the stone of stumbling is really referring to, back in verse 6, talking about the chief cornerstone, that it's jutted out just a little bit. How many of you have ever walked by something, there's something sticking out just a little bit, and you hit your shin on it? Or you stumbled and you fell? That's literally the picture, the chief cornerstone that's been put out there. It's been put in place. But because of careless walking by and rejection, it becomes a stumbling block to stumble over the truth of God's word. It's the foundation that God has established. But because of their rejection, it's not a matter of indifference, but because they have chosen to reject it, uh, that it becomes a stumbling block to them. Uh, Barnes said they cannot reject him without the most fearful consequences to their souls. In other words, when one rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the consequences that are eternal to their soul. And as I pray regarding these things that are going on and those that are the great deceivers, sometimes I just sit marveling at God's mercy and grace toward me, but realizing the day is going to come that they're going to be confronted with the truth forever and ever and ever and ever. We know a family who had a family member that just passed away from every indication, an unsaved man. After he passed away, a couple of them wanted to try to, well, you know, he really could have been this and that, but every indication was absolutely not with the lifestyle, especially. And not to be cruel to people at that point, but to help them to understand, not focusing, because their eternal destiny is set. I don't know if the last minute they made a decision. But the rich man in Lazarus gives us a clear picture uh, of what, if this person could come back regardless, what their plea to you would be. They made the choice. But Peter wrote, Whosoever shall fall on the stone, uh, or no, I'm sorry, here. Whereunto also they were appointed this uh, disobedience and the falling, the judgment that's going to come unto them. Says, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, there are those that would speak of a form of theology, Reformed theology, Calvinism, talking about God chooses those who are going to be saved. And this is a passage that proves it because right here it says that those that are judged, that God's appointed it. God did not appoint who was going to believe and who was going to not believe. God chose that those who disobey, will be judged. They will come to judgment. That's the appointment that's being talked about here. And we need to realize that that's very clear. There's no 
uh, second chance. There's no opportunity to change that. But the consequences of disobeying, of rejecting. But we want to look more so this morning on the matter of the consequences of those that choose to believe. Let's choose to be obedient. And the first part of uh, verse 7, he said unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. He's of great value. In John chapter 3, John, or Jesus said, John recorded, Jesus said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, he that believeth, there's a consequence there. There's no condemnation. No longer any condemnation whatsoever. You know, uh, I wanted to sing louder. You didn't want me to sing louder as we sang that first song. Uh, because there is no condemnation now that my sins have been taken away. That's not a license to do what I want to do. It's a license to live freely without that burden, without that weight, without that enslavement that takes place. And Peter wrote uh, here as we began looking in verse 9, the consequences of having chosen to believe. So if you're here this morning, you've chosen to believe, you really need to spend time meditating on, studying on what are the consequences? What does that provide for me? What does that give to me? First, he said, you're a chosen generation. When we think of generation, we think of a certain group of people. We have generation we're baby boomers, there's Xers, there's millennials. I don't know what their X, Y, Z, W. There's so many different generations now uh, that I don't know that anybody knows. They try to put characteristics uh, when we're all the same. Uh, and we don't need to put those characteristics on there. But the word here that's used for generation, we're a chosen generation or a privileged generation in a way regarding to the age that we are, is that we ought to realize that it's a humbling privilege that God has chosen us to be the age generation serving Him in these days. We don't need to wish for the good old days. We need to be thanking God in humility and meekness for the privilege He's given us to be the generation to serve Him in these days because that is a very privileged generation indeed. But the word translated generation here is plural, and it emphasizes all believers of all ages. It's not limited to just those that were alive at that time, uh, but it's to all believers. There's no ambiguity of one select group over another. We know that Peter was writing predominantly to Jewish Christians. Uh, and when we use that term, we understand what it means. But I, I'm Cherokee, Indian, Irish, German, American. I don't like that. I'm an American by birth. You don't need to put all those other hyphenated things on there. And it's really the same way with Christians. And sometimes we talk about a Jewish Christian. Why do we really need to put that on there? We all stand before God washed in the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus died. For, obviously, there's a special... I'm not doing replacement theology here. Don't get me that way. That... The Jews, Israel, are God's chosen people. There are still many promises to be fulfilled uh, to them. Uh, some trying times for those that do not repent except Messiah now. Uh, but these were Christians that had the Jewish heritage. They understood the Old Testament. They understood 
the law. They understood living under that uh, as he was writing to them here. But this is to all believers in all generations. So it's just as relevant to you and me today as it was to them. He said, you're a chosen generation. Literally means that to have been selected. In a way, it means to be a favorite. By implication, it means a favorite. You're a favorite generation. Uh, one day we're doing something. I told Caleb he was my favorite oldest grandson. And he got all excited about it. And he is my oldest grandson. So I could say you're my least favorite oldest grandson, too, and be just as accurate in that. There's no, there's no wishy-washiness in this, literally, that we are God's favorite, select, pulled-apart uh, generation. But it also means that we're of the same nature. We're of the same kind. When I worked for Duke Energy, I was in the southern part of the system riding around with one of the supervisors looking at some situations and we came from different heritage and ethnic backgrounds. He was telling me some situations with his son that was in college. And then he looked at me and he said, what would your people do with a situation like that? I said, Harry, you're born again. We're God's people. It's not your people, my people. We're all born again. And that's literally what this matter of generations is meaning, that we're all the same nature, the same kind, the same sort. In Matthew 13, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast in the sea and gathered of every kind. That word every kind is the same word as generations up here. In Acts 17, verse 29, uh, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art, and man's devices. That word offspring is the same word we have for generations. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. In journeyings often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen. Countrymen is the same word as generations here up above. So we're a chosen generation. That We're the people, we all have the same nature when we're born again. We're all the same nature. We're a royal priesthood. And that word royal gives us the understanding of kingly in nature. So when a person is born again, we become part of a royal, a kingly priesthood. Have you ever thought yourself as being kingly? Before God, you are part of a kingly. It's a royal rank, a royal place of service. It literally means not being in the gutter. In Revelation chapter 1, beginning verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the king of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood and hath made us kings and priests, Unto God and His Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That same term here, and He hath made us kings and priests unto God. The position that we hold. And we need to take time to think about that, not of just a puffed up chest, because I'm royal. In our church in Kingston, Ontario, we had a very precious widow that I have shared with you before. 
Mrs. Skeppel. She and her husband and family had immigrated from Antigua some 50 years before. She wrote a book on her heritage. Her grandparents were emancipated slaves. Mrs. Skeppel was a lady in every aspect of the word. She loved God immensely. She had a burden for souls. She was also very proper in her dress. She came with, she had the magazine, I forget what it is, on the British royalty that was always on her table in the living room following that. But it was with a respect, not an honoring, or not a worshiping. But she always wore the hat and just dressed to the tea. It showed her respect, her reverence. And she understood her position because she understood where her family had come from. And we need to understand in our lives that we are a, you're a royal priesthood. How do you present yourself in the world? So often we try to look like the world in every way, don't we? And one of the things, uh, if you look at different church websites, so often, one of the links on there is, what should I expect? And when you click on it, it says, come dressed as you are. There's a problem with that if you're a royal priest, part of a royal priesthood. You should come dressed as royalty. doesn't mean you go out and spend volumes of money for clothes, but it means you come dressed in a respectable way to church, not trying to be how... Uh, slothful house, casual you can be. God is a God of order. He's a God of decency. And as part of the royal priesthood, that's who we're representing. Does that mean if somebody comes to visit and they're not dressed nicely that we reject them? Absolutely not. We love them. They may have had no teaching. They may not have anything any better than that either. And we love them. But for each one of us, we don't look and see, boy, look, Mrs. Schmid wore that dress last time and the time before and the time before. Doesn't she have anything else to wear? Why does he always wear the same necktie? Well, why doesn't he wear a coat with his tie? No, that's judging men. But each one of us need to make sure that before God that we are seeking to do the best that we can how we present ourselves. So that matter then being a priest of royal priesthood as Baptists, we understand that uh, every believer is a priest before God. But the matter of priesthood, remembering that Peter was writing to Christians that had grown up as Jews under the laws, they had a great understanding of what the priesthood meant. And we're not immune to that understanding. We ought to have that understanding, too, because it helps us with our respect. The priesthood under the law was specific by birth. They had to have been born a Levite of the family of Aaron. A priest under the law was one that had great responsibility with privilege. The privilege came with responsibility, and the responsibility came with privilege. And every believer is a priest before God by the way of the new birth. So the fact that we are now a priest, a part of the royal priesthood, it doesn't give us a right to be arrogant, but to realize it's because we have been born again into that family, and it gives great privilege and great responsibility for who we are and what we are to do. And that matter of privilege, we can think of um, Eli's sons as priests. They used their privilege, didn't they? Irresponsibly. 
and very uh, wickedly, blasphemously. We see many that profess to be Christians that use that matter of being a royal priest in just as blasphemous of a way of giving the license to do something or because I hold this position, I am due, I am owed these things to me from other people around. That's not what this means at all. The chief privilege of a priest is access to God. So when we talk that matter of being a royal priest, part of the royal priesthood, we have direct access to God. We don't have to be looking to somebody else to be making intercession for us. And we need to be careful in our jokes and our language around that end as well. I'm going to repeat something I used to hear commonly, and you may have as well. I now understand it to be blasphemous, and I'm not saying it from that perspective, but as a way of instruction for warning. And, you know, one of the joys of living in the southeast is the lush green vegetation. We can have days that are 95 degrees after 95 degrees after 95 degrees and have lush green vegetation. And why is it? Because of these pop-up thunderstorms that raise the humidity and to bring all the rain. And you can draw lines sometimes where it rained right to this point and then it's dry on this side over here. And I heard it a lot, especially as a student at Clemson when I was working there, and usually it was from professing Christians. And they would say, well, you just didn't pay your preacher enough. If somebody got the shower and you didn't get the shower, you just didn't pay your preacher enough. Do you understand what we're communicating to the world when we say things like that? We may say it jokingly, but we're communicating to the world that, well, the preacher has a power that you don't have to come before God. And it's really a matter of how much you pay or how much you do as to whether you get it. No, you're a part of the royal priesthood by the new birth, and you have the equal access to the throne of God as any other individual. So in this dispensation of grace, all believers are unconditionally a part of the kingdom of priests, that we have it by the birthright that God has given to us. And we need to be very careful in how we interpret these things and how we use them in our lives. Another aspect when we talk about the matter of the priesthood, and call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. I can remember being taught as a Methodist boy and growing up of calling men father. Uh, no, for one that is born, we're to call no man upon earth our spiritual father, but God alone. And he said, and a holy nation. Now, think about that a minute. Here, Paul was, or Peter was writing, and he said, you are a an holy nation. These were individuals that were scattered abroad. As he started out in his letter, he said, to the strangers scattered throughout, and then he named these different areas that they were scattered throughout. So they were scattered, they were pilgrims, and he said, you're a holy nation. Sounds like a little bit of a paradox there, doesn't it? And the word nation there literally means a people. We are a holy people that have been chosen by God. We're his people, uh, not a part of the world any longer because our citizenship is in heaven. And he has set us apart from the rest of the world. You're a holy nation, a peculiar people. And that word peculiar, I hope that you do know and understand already, but it literally means somebody that's been acquired. So you're a people that has been acquired through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So as Peter was writing to these individuals here, telling them the consequences of the choice of believing, they're scattered, they've lost everything that they had, they've lost their heritage in a way because they're no longer a part of the Jewish culture or nation because now they're Christians. And he's writing to instruct them and encourage them, but because you have believed, because you have chosen to believe and have made these choices, that you're no longer caught by that stumbling stone, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people that should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look what he came to here after identifying who they were, what, who we are, the position that we hold. Now he comes to the responsibility. There's a purpose that we've been set apart in this way that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. David, when he saw the confusion among the Israelite army, when he took the ridicule of his older brothers, as he heard Goliath calling out, what was David's uh, response? Is there not a cause? It wasn't a matter of pragmatism, was it, for David? And we need to understand that when we hold this position, it's not a pragmatic position. It's not something, what can I get out of it? But that God has told us that he has given us for a specific purpose. That purpose is that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That showing forth, now we have a strange spelling here, because when we read that, we probably think of show, S-H-O-W. Was that a typo in our Bibles? No, it's old English, and its word literally means to proclaim and to publish. So because you are a part of the royal priesthood, because you are a part of the chosen generation, because you are a part of the holy nation, uh, that you are to publish, you are to proclaim the praises. That matter of praises literally means manliness of valor. Talking with... Howard up front here a minute ago, he was talking about somebody that he's praying with, praying for regarding salvation. And this individual asked him about one of Howard's personal interests in life, uh, if you know what that is for self-defense. And this man responded that he thought Christians were a bunch of pacifists, that they wouldn't have any interest in that aspect of life. And notice what the word is here when it said, show forth the praises. That word literally means manliness of valor. It's not effeminate. It's not cowardly. Yet do we, what do we see so much of what's presented as Christianity today? It's absolute effeminacy. It's cowardness. And looking around, there are things that we associate with male and female. Masculine and feminine. You may say, Pastor, you're a bigot. There are certain color shirts I will not wear. Give it to me. I'm not going to wear it. You may. I won't. Uh, and I was sharing with Jennifer that I looked at the website of a particular Baptist university for some particular reasons. And the group that was on there, their ensemble, the guys looked nice with their pink neckties. And the way they stood, we need to stand with that valor 
with that manliness. We're not cowards. We know the truth. We have truth. We're to be strong in the Lord. Equip yourself like men. Now, ladies have a role and men have a role in life. But Christian ladies are not to be cowards either. That we are all to be strong. And that's what Peter was writing here. That you are dispersed, that you're scattered, that you've lost everything from the worldly perspective. Living by faith, looking above. And he said that you're to proclaim literally with manliness of valor, no fear whatsoever, not the emotionalism that so many call praise today, this hooping and uh, emotional fleshly stuff, but with manly valor that we are to show forth the praises of Him. And here again, notice it's specific, of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. If everything that we're saying and doing is not pointing back to the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work, then we have totally missed the mark. It's exclusive. It's specific. There's nothing else that we can mix in with it. We're thankful for a good, scriptural, godly church, but why is it that we're thankful for it? It's because Christ established it. Christ is the head of it. And it's the testimony, it's part of his body, it's the testimony that he has established. It's nothing about the people that are here uh, that makes it good or great. There's an exclusivity here. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. We're thankful for those that God brings into our lives as a testimony. But the testimony is of God, of Jesus Christ, of the Word of God. And it's not the individual that's right. Yesterday we were, had gone out for uh, an outing with another couple and for lunch and we're talking about, talking about some folks that are now with the Lord that the Lord used in our lives and how desperately I wish I could go back and talk to them now and express my gratitude and how God used them in my life. Uh, yet, if I could, they're with the Lord now. What would they say? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how our lives ought to be lived in such a way that anything that is a blessing, that's an encouragement, that's used as a chastening in the life of the other is not my eloquence of speech, not my harshness of tone. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God through His Word. And then the matter that he finished it with here in this verse that is really something that should humble us as well as to empower us who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you. I'll see there. He called. There's only a certain ones that he calls. No. He's called every man to salvation. He reveals himself. He desires that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But Peter is writing to a specific group, and he's addressing, reminding you, reminding me, that he called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. And that means literally away from. I was in my 20s before I ever heard the word separation. It's such a critical principle regarding the matter of holiness, of being able to be vessels meet and sanctified for the Lord's use. And right here we have another one of those passages regarding separation. He hath called you 
out of away from darkness, from the things of this world, the things that are contrary to God, into his marvelous light, that which is worthy of uh, admiration, something that passes our comprehension. It means it's something that we, again, humble ourselves. We can't understand everything that is uh, exists because God is so great. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That's the testimony of the marvelous light that God has given. In verse 10 of this passage, Peter wrote, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Again, putting this in the context of the specific people he was writing to, Jewish Christians. They're part of God's chosen nation. What did Peter write to them? You were not a people. They were not of a circumcised heart. And to understand for each one of us that knows the Lord Jesus Christ... We were not a people. We were in darkness. We were in rebellion and disobedience against God. But are now the people of God. We are that nation that God has established, that generation that God has chosen, that we have obtained God's mercy. Choices have consequences. Peter addressed to them at this point the importance of making right choices. There are alternatives that are put before us. And we often say, I long for the day I don't have to be tempted. I don't have to be tried. I don't have to make those choices. We were at a, it was a thing regarding roses yesterday that we had gone to on growing roses. And we were joking about the thorns. And I said, just think, if Eve had never taken that bite of the fruit, there wouldn't be a thorn. And the brother was with us. And he said, I think it was when Adam did it that the real transgression came. <laughs> and we know that it is. Uh, but choices have alternatives. And the last aspect as we look at that, the choices that you make do not impact just you. The choices that you make impact many others. You may not know until you get to heaven, but it impacts many others. You may be a stumbling block to somebody. It may be by God's grace that later you come unto understanding, you repent and you go back to try to make things right, and they refuse. They continue the path that they really started. But they made a choice, and they're making a choice again. Don't walk away with guilt, because by God's grace, every one of us in here, I doubt there's an individual in here anyway, that can't think of some time in your life, of some choice that you made, of something that you said, something you did, some place you allowed yourself to be, that you know was not right, and you look back now and, you see where that was used as a stumbling block for somebody else. And it grieves your heart. It grieves my heart. But the reality is when you go back to them and confess what was wrong, you've brought light to them, and they're making a choice at that point. And the verses that Nathan read this morning, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. But still comes back to the warning for us to be diligent in the choices that we're making. That with the understanding that we have from God's word, with the light that he has given to us, to be very diligent, to not allow ourselves to be slack regarding the choices. 
and then realizing that for those of us who are walking in God's word, that there's a purpose that we have and to be focused and diligent on that matter of that purpose.